This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. The province has announced a plan to expand fourth COVID-19 dose eligibility to include people under 60 as of tomorrow morning. And what does it mean now that we are in the midst of a seventh wave? We're also taking a closer look at the new antibody study out of the University of Toronto, which shows that individuals who were infected by the COVID-19 virus before 2022 have little protection against Omicron. What are your questions? Do you find the messages a little confusing? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Barry Pecos, Medical Officer of Health for York Region, and Dr. Sean Owen, who was a contributor to that study. He's an associate professor in the Department of Pharmaceutics and Pharmaceutical Chemistry at the University of Ottawa. Welcome and thank you so much for being with us. Hello. Good afternoon. Thank you. Let us begin with Dr. Pekas. So we just had uh, an announcement for Dr. Kieran Moore, the Chief Medical Officer of Health, and uh, it seemed a little confusing about who should be getting those fourth shots and when. Uh, what's your reaction to it? Sure. You know, this, this has been coming for some time, and it's understandable that it's confusing. It, it is not uh, really straightforward. The first dose was straightforward. The second dose is straightforward. It is incredibly clear that everyone over age 12 should have a third dose. And right now, um, you know, the message really is for, for vulnerable immunocompromised people. Um, and then we are, we already had that message needs the fourth dose. And now the new message is, 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 you know, outside of that, those strict criteria, if you are in a vulnerable group or feel you're in a vulnerable group or would prefer to get it now, get it now. For anyone who's healthy between age 18 and 59, you can get it now, but it's reasonable to wait. That's that's the best way I can, I can summarize this. Yeah, I, I find it, frankly, confusing because people who were under 60 and who were Im- immunocompromised or vulnerable already could get it. Well, you know, that is true, but only in specific categories. You know, there was, you know, whether it's on Twitter and the public sphere generally, there were large numbers of people who were passionately wanting to get that fourth dose because they had their third dose, you know, well over six months ago. In my case, personally, I'm, I'm under 50 and had it eight months ago and really wanted to get that next dose, but didn't fall into one of those categories. They have diabetes or hypertension or kidney illness, but not one of those specified. And they were really passionate about wanting to get it. And what the government now says is, you know what, you can get it if you feel passionately about it, if you're anxious about it, if you have someone at home, you don't qualify, but you do live with someone at home who you're worried about, you can get it. But it is not a strong recommendation. And the National Advisory Committee Immunization did not recommend it strongly. They continue to just say, we may offer it. So it really is a personal discretion kind of thing. And it is complicated because we are going to be facing a fall wave and and there is going to be a minimum interval between you're getting a dose, fourth dose now, and another dose probably in the fall. So there's a lot to think about for people. Dr. Sean Owen, I mean, uh, this really puts the study you were involved in into a kind of high relief because your study says that any antibodies we had before 2022 aren't really going to help us with any of the Omicron variants. Yeah, I think one thing important about our assay and what we developed was to be able to test each one of the variants independently to see if a person was previously exposed or vaccinated, would they have continued protection, um, and how long would that last. But I think it's really important to recognize that our assay is limited to one type of antibody, and that's called a neutralizing antibody. And this is an antibody that will protect you against uh, the, the virus actually binding to cells in your body. Most of the vaccines are developed to produce 
these kinds of neutralizing antibodies. Um, and that's why we care so much about it. But it's only one component of the immune system. Um, and so I think that even though we show that a person might not be able to avoid an infection from Omicron, it's really important to, to, to realize that vaccination helps avoid serious infection. Um, and, and our body does have other mechanisms to, to protect ourselves against these kinds of infections. Now, I, I'm wondering about the cutoff of uh, 2021, because I know of a lot of people uh, who were infected uh, at the very end of December or right at the beginning of the year, and presumably that was Omicron. So what about their immunity? I think it's a good question. We don't have a clear understanding yet of, you know, the original Omicron versus, you know, these newest strains of Omicron. Um, I think that we, anecdotally, we've seen some people that have been infected more than once, but it's really impossible to know which strain they were infected with previously versus now. I, I just really default to the idea that you know, getting a vaccine is super important because it'll protect against you know the the most serious cases for most people. Um, but we do see that if you this idea that if six months ago, a year ago, you were infected or had a vaccine, at this point, um, the the variants are so different that you're not going to be prevented from getting an infection, most likely. I want to get back, Dr. Pecos, to the timing of it. Uh, sort of uh, before all this came out, I was kind of under the assumption that if you got sick, that maybe that gave you immunity from for somewhere around three months on average, and that would be on top of the five or six months you'd get from a shot. Uh, does any of that still hold? Yes, it does. And this just, you know, dovetailing on, on what uh, what was already said here is there's, you know, um, there are many types of immunity. And I think, you know, over the past two and a half years, everybody has had a crash course on immunology. And it's really important to understand that just because you're not protected against getting infected, whether it's from the vaccine or from being uh, infected previously, that doesn't mean that, that there are other types of immunity that aren't incredibly important. And those other types are in fact more important because what we're really focusing on with this vac- with all vaccines and the, and the announcement right now is preventing severe infection because it's that severe infection that is going to lead to people going to hospitals. It's hospitals and acute care capacity that we're really trying to focus on at a population level. Everybody cares about whether they get it themselves and whether they get ill themselves, and that is critically important. But it's it's the it's the health system level that this is mostly focused on, which which is why really this this announcement isn't a big deal. What is a big deal is people need to get their third dose because it's your third dose that actually, while it may not prevent you from getting infected necessarily, that's what everybody needs in order to prevent severe infection. And that's what we really need at a population level to prevent, you know, acute care capacity from being even further strained. Yeah, but there's also this, I don't know, misconception out there that I think I know that we don't have our third doses. Uh, have you, People have not taken that up as much as the authorities would want. And I think part of it is that there seems to be this misconception uh, that, okay, you know, we're not uh, getting severe illness, but people are getting sick. And there's this thing out there that it's, if you get it, it's going to be nothing. And I have to tell you, I know a lot of people who have had it and it was not nothing. It was, you know, they were quite ill. They didn't have to go to the hospital, but they were sick. Yeah. And that's, abs- I mean, that's really a hundred percent true. And we've seen that throughout because, you know, even, even prior to, to the, um, to any of the vaccines, um, you know, most young, otherwise healthy people didn't get that that ill. But but when an infection is new and and 15 million people in Ontario or potentially get sick, that's a huge deal. If one in a thousand or one in ten thousand gets ill, and and people are getting you know ill enough that they're remarking to you, this is the worst you know the worst uh, you know illness I've ever had in my life. But if they're still not going to hospital, you know it's it it almost doesn't register in many ways. But absolutely, people who are getting the BA five variant. There's no doubt. And many of the people in my circles who are healthcare providers or in public health or others who've been incredibly vigilant to this at, until this point and who have not, um, you know, had COVID so far and they are, they're totally vaccinated and they're getting BA5. Yeah, they're getting kind of ill. They're not going to hospital, but they're getting pretty darn ill.
Well, yeah, I mean, uh, just as somebody uh, I was supposed to have a Zoom meeting with tonight, and uh, they can't have a Zoom meeting because they're too ill. So I didn't really want that meeting anyway, but I hope the person (laughs) feels better. Um, Let us take a call from Joyce in Mississauga. Hello, Joyce. Hello. You're on the air. Go ahead, Joyce. Thank you. I'm in a long care, uh, long care home facility. And, um, I haven't, I've been fighting like crazy to get my third shot. I haven't had it. Uh, I'm getting a little panicky now because, um, what they're doing here in this particular establishment is they're bringing in a lot of people from outside. I've been, I've been basically staying in my room, uh, with a mask and wearing a mask. Um, because I'm terrified of getting it. Uh, and now I understand this other one is very, very uh, transmissible. It's very contag- highly contagious, and it's a lot more deadly. No, it, it, it's, it's, it's not a lot more deadly. I'm going to let uh, the doctors respond to you, but why are you having trouble getting a third shot? Well, I thought people in long-term care had their fourth. Because I don't, they're not, they're not giving, I need the visor and they're not giving it to me. And there's other things going on in here now. Um, they're bringing, um, it's a four story building and now they're clearing out the first floor and they're bringing in patients and transients from, uh, Trillium from the hospital in here. And now we, I don't know what, it's just getting, it's, it's very bad in here. And I, I really, Somebody needs to investigate the situation because it's really bad. Uh, Dr. Pecos, does that sound like something that's happening, that people in long-term care can't get a third dose? I'm really sorry to hear that. I didn't hear the beginning of of the situation. We have problems with the line. I'll tell you where I am. I don't mind telling you where I am. I'm at Camilla Care. Okay, yeah, that's a that's a a nursing home that's had a lot of problems. Dr. Pecos, please go ahead. So, you know, there, there's no doubt most people, in my experience, certainly, who are in long-term care have had four, and many people have had five doses. So I'm, I'm very sorry to hear about that. It, it certainly does seem like a, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping it's a unique experience to that particular place, and I, and I hope it does get resolved. Hopefully this, you know, shining a light on it through being on the radio here will, will, will help somewhat, but it isn't the experience generally. It's not what we see in most long-term care facilities, most of those people have had their third, fourth, in many cases, fifth shot. Okay, well, uh, we're going to have to follow up on that at Camilla Care. Um, so, basically, what's the bottom line on this in light of the study, Dr. Rowan? Um, I think that what we're seeing is that we continue to have new variants, and, and these are changing. How, how we should deal with them is the same, though. Uh, we need to continue to be masking when we're in, you know, high dense areas. Um, in my opinion, I think that vaccines, even if they're not designed specifically against each one of the variants, they still have long-term protection, and they really train the body to to learn how to respond quicker to these these new variants um, and help us avoid severe uh, some of these severe outbreaks. So I think that the bottom line is, yes, we don't have protection against infection per se, but we still have protection from from getting seriously ill from the vaccines. Um, and I think that we really need to eventually move forward beyond just boosters and starting to get, uh, you know, designer vaccines is, is the best way I can describe it, that are maybe tweaked just a little bit more to give offer a little more protection against these these emerging variants. But at, at the time, I think the booster is an excellent choice and we should all be doing it. Uh, Dr. Pekas, so again, uh, you know, there was some discussion with Dr. Moore today about the timing, and he's telling people that if you get a fourth shot now, don't worry, you'll still be able to get the hopefully more targeted vaccine booster in the fall, right? Yes, that's true. So as Dr. Moore pointed out, there's, you know, things can change, but right now we generally recommend a five-month interval between vaccines because that, that you know, allows for, for that protection to build up, and that's the best interval we know of. We're allowing people to get it after three months. So, you know, just again, in, in my case, as a healthcare worker, I got vaccinated back in November, my third dose. I'm eight, eight months now from my fourth dose, so I'm, I'm hoping to get it now. I actually went online in my local pharmacy. The website's down, so clearly people are interested. So, 
Um, and when I think about myself, when is it going to be, you know, when am I going to be eligible for the next dose, um, which will hopefully be the bivalent one. So, you know, July, August, September, October, and in October, November, three months, and then, you know, a month or two later, if we're, if I'm waiting five months, is going to be still when we're in the midst of probably a fall wave. And, and after we've given the bivalent, which is, is the, the one that's going to protect a little more against Omicron to more, um, you know, more susceptible, more vulnerable people. So that's very reasonable. Now, if you're asking yourself, you know, I'm not sure about the fourth dose now, let me wait for another couple of weeks or months. You know, that same story isn't going to be true if you wait until late August or early September. Um, you know, if you're keen to get it, it'd be a good idea to get it in the next couple of weeks. Um, because if you do get it later, it may interfere with you getting your next dose. So that's, that's really the message here. Number one message is get your third dose and if you're, you know, listeners of this radio station and you've already had your third dose and are thinking about your fourth, it's still good to talk to your family members, your kids, your grandkids about getting their third dose. And then your fourth dose, if you're keen on it, you know, I wouldn't say rush out the door to get it tomorrow, but over the next month, it'd be a good idea to, to get that over the next month to put you in a good position for the fall. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Barry Pecos and Dr. Sean Owen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Have a great day. Thank you. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, the latest goings on around the Patrick Brown campaign, Brampton, we will be talking to Patrick Brown's campaign manager when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back now to the conservative leadership race and the fallout from last week's disqualification of Patrick Brown. He and his team are trying to challenge that decision, but he's acknowledged that may not work. And he's gone on record saying he would support Jean Charest if it doesn't. His campaign co-chair John Reynolds has gone over to the Charest campaign. Meanwhile, an Ontario Superior Court justice has overturned the controversial appointment of a Brampton City Councillor, an appointment that was opposed by Brown and his allies, who are pitted against a faction of equal size that opposes him. So is this feud overshadowing city business in Brampton on top of everything else. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to John McIntyshen, Patrick Brown's campaign manager, and Bob Richardson, liberal strategist and senior counsel to National Public Relations. Hey, guys, thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, Libby. Always a pleasure. Uh, thank you. Uh, John, let's begin with you. So, um, Patrick Brown and you say you're still fighting this, but you've acknowledged that uh, it, it might be a, a very much a lost cause. Well, there's a problem, right? The clock is still ticking. I mean, if the party had actually wanted to do the right thing, they could have either suspended the leadership like they did uh, a couple of years ago during COVID, uh, while Elections Canada did its work, or they could have allowed Patrick to continue running while there was an investigation of what most people believe will turn out to be nothing. But sadly, uh, the clock is running, uh, ballots are being delivered, and people are filling them out and sending them back. So it becomes a fait accompli. And and so are, have would you say that uh, Patrick Brown Patrick has accepted that he's out of the race? Um, no, I wouldn't say accepted. I, I would say, and it's and it's a difficult situation, right? When you've been wronged, when something's so glaring and clearly not coming from a place of justice, no due process. Uh, you know, uh, you, you have a choice. Uh, you know, you can fight or you can just accept it. And, you know, uh, us kind of normal people deal with it when we get a parking ticket. Uh, you get a chance to, or a speeding ticket, you can, uh, you can appeal it. You can end up in a court system and there's a, a process for having your say. But the way the Conservative Party has staged, managed this situation, uh, they're saying there's not even an appeal process. And after they did a couple things clearly against the rules, like denying him the list of members, 
And uh, it's very difficult when you're judge, jury, and executioner. Uh, so accepting it? No. Um, I, I'd say he isn't accepting the situation. He's fighting for what he believes is his rights and what we believe collectively is the rights of over 150,000 uh, members to join the party to support him. Bob Richardson, is the perception, uh, as far as you know, in all kinds of political circles or the public, that Patrick Brown is the victim here? Or what is the fallout from this? Uh, I think there's a bit of a conundrum around uh, around Mr. Brown. On the one hand, I think the Conservative Party has handled this in an appalling fashion. You know, an 11 p.m. announcement, no press conference, no ability to ask questions. Uh, no recourse, uh, uh, a split vote by the executive and those uh, involved. When you're taking a candidate out of a race, that's a big deal. And you better have your ducks all in order and you better be transparent about it. And they really weren't. So that's the negative part. The other part on it, and this may be fair or unfair, Patrick Brown is a bit exhausting politically. You know, like he always seems to uh, have some some problems around him whether that is fair or not i happen to think he's been a pretty good mayor of brampton to be quite honest uh but you know he's got problems in brampton with his council and some people you know raising concerns about some cozy relationships he had problems at the province you know documented by the ethics commissioner of the legislature and also by folks in his party and now federally, there are, you know, complaints obviously raised against him as well. So, you know, I think Mr. Brown does need to ask himself, because I think at the end of the day, look, he's a smart, hardworking, committed politician. But I think he needs to ask himself, what am I doing that I have to do differently so I don't have this following me around all the time? And I think that's a fair question. Uh, John, what's your take on that? I, I think um, that's one of the reasons, while he's a, a liberal, and I don't agree with his uh, choice in elections, I have a lot of respect for Bob. Uh, I, I think it's a, it's a very fair statement, um, and it, it raises a couple interesting points. Um, you know, we don't hear about or remember 95% of the people we elect to public office. And there's a reason, and that's primarily that they don't do anything. They don't stand for anything. They just kind of go along. They're happy to get their check. And their number one goal in life is not to make the papers unless it's some kind of ribbon cutting. But for the for the others, the people who actually try to do something, who stand for something, who fight for a cause, uh, and this is true of all the parties, um, and, you know, same municipally, um, when you stand up and you fight for something, you're going to end up... Uh, you know, more than often uh, catching the headlines because what will happen is you will have people who decide they dislike you or they hate you or they dislike your point of view. So people who take a stand are uh, targets for other people. And uh, the second thing I was going to say is it's difficult. You know, we all make mistakes in life. And, uh, you know, the, the older we get, uh, it's kind of troubling that every time somebody mentions your name that they go back, you know, seven or ten years and create and list all the things you've done wrong or all the allegations piled in as if it's today's story. So in this situation, uh, with his disqualification, he was accused of one thing by one person who, when we all heard the name, we went, oh, my God, her. Uh, so not credible. And uh, but. You know, there is the there is what Bob is saying, that there is a history uh, that people who are not your friends can use against you. And then it's up to the public to decide. Bob, I mean, one of the things I know there are some allegations about improper loans or, or things like that. But when it comes to the issue of, say, signing up new members, he does things differently than they were done for a long time. And it was, you know, way back when he got the leadership, it was a huge shock to the Christine Elliott campaign. And um, he kind of, uh, I guess, colored outside the line. Is is that the problem, that he's doing things in a new way? Well, I think part of it is he's doing things in a new way, and he's also appealing to a huge block of voters 
that are not traditional voters uh, of the of the Conservative Party. And by the way, doing it quite successfully in Barrie, in Brampton, uh, and in uh, and in leadership. So you know, I think that's that's the positive side of it. I think he needs to adapt his tactics a bit. That may be a little uh, that may be a little harsh, or be uh, uh, let's say uh, fly a little too close to the sun because it's obviously getting into his, uh, getting him into trouble, and he and it ends up um, you know creating a situation that that is ultimately not helpful to him. But you know, at the end of the day, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, all the political parties right now could use. Uh, a few people who um, are out there recruiting Canadians who haven't shown, you know, haven't been that active politically, bringing new people into the party. I can tell you, like in the most recent Ontario election, the Ontario Liberal Party was dead in two thirds of the ridings across the country or uh, uh, in, uh, in Ontario with, you know, small little groups of people that have been around for 100 years like me, you know, doing stuff. And the party needs a massive jolt of energy and enthusiasm and new people if it's going to go forward. I think Mr. Brown does that for the Conservative Party, and I think the, they should be cautious on how uh, tough and nasty they are towards him. Well, and it's interesting if you mentioned the Ontario election, Doug Ford's Conservatives have brought in all kinds of people who used to be Liberal voters. Yeah, and, and he's done a very good job of it, and uh, I think that's because a liberal stopped being liberals in the last two elections, and we're trying to be new Democrats. Uh, I'm a moderate centrist liberal, and when we run as a moderate centrist party, we win. Premier Peterson won, Premier McGinty won, and actually when Premier Wynne uh, ran, she ran as a centrist. She governed more as a new Democrat. But uh, So I think when you're in the, in the center, we do well. Uh, when we uh, when we try to pretend we're new, new Democrats, we get our clock cleaned, and that's what's happened in the last two elections. Um, I, I want to talk about Brampton a bit, and you know, as an outsider looking at this, and I I see this in other uh, contests and races. There is so much mud being thrown in all directions that you kind of have no way of knowing. Who's right? Who's wrong? And it it it's getting to the point where it just seems like the feud between Patrick Brown and his allies is, and 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 the people who oppose him is kind of overtaking everything else. John, is he worried about that? Uh, no, because what we have coming up is an election. So there's the good news. Uh, in a few weeks, we will on October 22nd have an opportunity for the good people of Brampton to. I decide. think October 24th. No. Oh, sorry, the 24th. Yep. Um, but we'll be happy to let them decide on whether or not Patrick has done a good job as mayor, and they'll decide on him, and then they'll look at their local councillors. And I mean, we just had uh, six councillors that were told by a judge, right? And that it, democracy is. Uh, you know, one of our courts, right? The court of public opinion. The other is the actual legal system. So here, when the political people couldn't agree, and a group of people, as is now the fact, a judge found that, you know, six counselors acted illegally, not had a difference of opinion from the mayor and the other counselors, but they acted illegally, they acted wrongly, and they've been fined for their actions. So that's about as strong a condemnation as you can get from a judge or from the court system. And I think that's, you know, something for all those people that are, uh, that were on the wrong side of this issue, trying to appoint one of their friends even before there was a vacancy. But what you're going to find is the question for them is how do they go knocking on doors and defend themselves from spending all this money and being, doing something that was completely self-interested and a power, and a power play that failed. Uh, from what you said, are you saying that uh, Patrick has decided to run again for mayor? Because the last I heard, he was still thinking about it. Well, I'm saying he's still thinking about it, but I'm I'm hoping he will. I'm an optimistic person. So uh, certainly the way he was treated by the federal conservative party and is being treated by them uh, still, uh, because we still haven't heard uh, a word from them officially since uh, the disqualification. 
most of what we get in the way of news, we read in the paper uh, coming from them. But uh, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, he's a young guy. He, he's had a good career in public service at the municipal level, both in Barrie and then Brampton. And I'm hoping he continues. I would hope that, uh, you know, there's far too many people that don't enter public life because of the um, the stuff that happens to them and the the nastiness of the game. And he's proven resilient, and uh, hopefully he chooses to stay. Uh, Bob, what's your take on that, on the uh, the flying mud in Brampton? Well, uh, there, there's a bit of history of flying mud in, in Brampton. Absolutely. So, uh, uh, keep your head down if you're, if you're out in Brampton. I mean, ask former Mayor Susan Fennell, who was raked over the coals and really dragged through the, through the press during her time, uh, her time as mayor. At the end of uh, multiple investigations, it turned out that there was uh, nothing really there. Uh, Linda Jeffrey, uh, the, the previous mayor to uh, Patrick Brown, uh, former cabinet minister, good uh, MPP, uh, smart person. She had a hell of a time dealing with Brampton City Council. Uh, which was uh, very, very difficult and polarized, too, as well. So this situation in Brampton, uh, in fairness to Mr. Brown, is not uh, necessarily a Mr. Brown situation. I think it's a Brampton situation. Uh, I think as mayor of Brampton, um, you got to argue he's done actually a relatively decent job. I don't think there's probably been, uh, uh, maybe next to uh, Bonnie next door, uh, a more active mayor out there. Uh, he's kept his taxes relatively low. I think he's been good for the region and participated in region-wide things well. I thought he handled himself during the pandemic well, and I thought he was one of the adults uh, when we were uh, going through, you know, the worst of the pandemic. And he's worked hard, for instance, to get a university in his uh, in his city. So all those things, I think, are a relatively good track record for a mayor. Uh, but uh, this council situation, again, is something that he needs to work on um, as best he can because it, it just feeds into that idea that there's something wrong with this guy and, and, and you need to fix stuff, even if it isn't, uh, even if it isn't largely his, uh, his fault. Okay, uh, John McCutition, so uh, Marie Hennon, is a Patrick Brown's lawyer and she wants an appeal. Where is that at? Uh, it, that's about where it's at. Um, I'm not involved in the uh, uh, legal part of this. Uh, Patrick, uh, you know, hired on one of the best lawyers in the country. Uh, by all accounts, she leads her field and her specialty. And uh, we uh, trust in her fully and wait for the direction that she has. So we don't really comment on anything. We, we more watch what's happening than anything else. Well, as I, the last I read, she was demanding something happen uh, by a certain deadline that I think has already passed. Yes, uh, that's true. And then it's now up for, for her to decide what's next. I see. Uh, Bob, so uh, where is, is this thing, it, how do you see this? Is this kind of uh, finished and a done deal? I think it basically is for the conservative leadership. Uh, I think uh, uh, he'll be obviously encouraging his supporters to support Mr. Charest. I think he's out of that. Uh, I think they will pursue their case. And if they're to win their case, it'll be a, you know, a little bit of a hollow victory. Uh, but, uh, you know, he is, he's probably right to do so, uh, given the way that the conservative party, uh, handled that. Uh, but, uh, I fully expect Mr. Brown will be, uh, a candidate for mayor of Brampton again. And, uh, we'll, uh, we'll see how that, uh, how that Brampton Donnybrook turns out at the, uh, at the end of the day in October. John McCondition, anything you want to leave us with? Uh, Maybe simply that, you know, Patrick's example of public service is just a good reminder that, uh, you know, in Ontario, uh, the, the deadline for filing your papers is August 19th, and that anybody who's thinking of, you know, running or adding to their community, they've got an opportunity through either their local council or through school boards. Those are all elected positions, and... Uh, more good people putting their name forward is something we could all use. 
Okay. Thank you so much, John McCutishan and Bob Richardson. Always an interesting conversation, and I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thanks, Libby. Bye now. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, wow, it was a bit of a shock this morning. The rate hike from the Bank of Canada was a full percentage point. That's the biggest increase since 1998. The biggest increase this century. So uh, what does it mean for us as if we didn't have enough economic and financial shocks in our lives right now. We'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. This morning, we were all expecting a big interest rate hike. What we got was even bigger than what economists were predicting. It was the most aggressive rate hike since 1998, the last century. It was one full percent, and it brings the bank rate to two and a half percent from one and a half percent, and it's the fourth consecutive rate increase since March. Will it be enough to stop the runaway inflation that we are experiencing? And what about the hit to our retirement portfolios? I have a couple of experts here. So if you have questions, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Alan Small, Senior Investment Advisor with Anal Alan Small Financial Group, uh, Private Wealth, and Gordon Pape, editor and publisher of the Internet Wealth Builder and Income Investor Newsletters. Hello, and thanks for joining us. Hi, let me nice to be here. Thank you. Uh, let us begin with Gordon Pape. You know, I just checked the markets, and uh, they weren't down as much as I expected. So at least that's reasonable news. Uh, what do you what do you think of this full percentage rate hike? Basically, I think it's a, a situation in which the Bank of Canada is trying to uh, recover from the terrible mistakes it made last year. As you may recall, last year uh, they were uh, telling us that inflation was uh, transitory, and actually that was the same message that we were getting from the U.S. Federal Reserve Board, when in fact anyone who's completed uh, Economics 101 knew that uh, after the massive government deficits incurred in 2020 uh, to stimulate the economy at the time of the lockdowns, that uh, this was inevitably going to play through in an inflationary way because it was simply printing money out of nothing. And that's a formula for inflation. So now what they're trying to do is they're trying to put the genie back in the bottle and the uh, 1% interest rate hike today uh, is uh, a method of trying to um, convey to the Canadian population that uh, indeed they're now really serious about this and they're going to keep working on it until they get the inflation target back down to their uh, 2% level. But they also said, and this is very important, that that probably isn't going to happen until 2024, late in 2024. So that means I think we have more interest rate hikes coming along the way. Oh well, everyone is everyone is expecting that. Uh, there's some. Uh, I apologize to our listeners. There's obviously something strange going on on these lines. Uh, I have an echo here. Uh, we'll try to get through it. <clears throat> okay, uh, let's go to Alan Small. And Alan, I can tell you, uh, yesterday I worked up the courage to look at my portfolio for the first time in a while, and uh, it wasn't a really pretty picture. I imagine that your clients are experiencing the same thing. Yes, uh, I think everyone, unfortunately, is experiencing uh, similar downturns in their portfolios. I think, uh, you know, it's interesting, though, I, you know, obviously doing this for a while, I've been through a lot of uh, the ups and downs, whether it was the financial crisis, uh, COVID crisis, uh, March of 2020, financial crisis in 08, um, or even simply 2018, fourth quarter, when... Uh... Alan, are you there? 
Can you hear me? Uh, I can hear you now. You dropped uh, out. Okay. Or, or raising, uh, raising rates into a slowing growth economy. Um, you know, I think investors at this point, they, they seem to have a, a little bit more patience. I think they're understanding uh, as uh, what's going on out there. They're understanding a little bit better. Uh, I know that, yes, uh, you know, there was an easy money policy for quite some time, which has uh, come back to, to bite us a little bit. But I think you also have to look at other factors that are causing this higher inflation, such as oil prices, such as uh, labor issues. Uh, these are, in my opinion, two of the, the top factors that have caused uh, the price or, or inflation to rise as significantly as it has. And I think the, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of Canada, is trying to combat these things. And in my opinion, it's unfortunate because uh, the the issues they're, they're they're attacking or what they're trying to do is is dampen the demand side of the equation. They're trying to slow people's demand for goods and services, trying to slow down the economy. And in fact, what we're probably going to see is an uptick in unemployment at some point down the road because of it. When when really, uh, what we should be doing is trying to figure out how to how to get more oil out there in the in the in the big world so we can bring down energy costs or get more people working to to hopefully improve supply chains and, and get restaurants and businesses back up and running full capacity. This, to me, has really uh, been the, 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 those two things have been really uh, the big, um, I guess, causes uh, as of late in, in seeing the inflation run up to the degree that it has. And I think that's what's fooled these central banks. They, they thought inflation would be more transitory. And unfortunately, due to the war in Ukraine, higher energy costs, which I think has really hit home and really cause inflation to to spike a lot higher, uh, I think, you know, these are the things that, that confuse the central banks and why they weren't prepared to attack this problem sooner. Well, uh, I, I know one of the things that we are being warned about is that we're headed to recession and that jobs will be lost. Uh, personally, given the kinds of labor shortages we're experiencing, that's a head scratcher for me. But, but Gordon, focusing on people, especially people in our older demographic, what are you advising people in terms of their savings? Well, my advice uh, is not very different from that of uh, our other guests, and that is basically uh, assuming you have a good plan in place, simply stay the course. We've seen this before. This is not new where the uh, market goes up, the market goes down. We saw a market crash in 2000 uh, when the dot-com bubble burst. We saw a market crash in 2008 when the uh, financial crisis hit us. Uh, we've seen this before. We've gone through it. We come out the other side. As long as you're holding good securities in your portfolio, uh, well, hang on to them. And the worst thing you could do now is to be selling good companies that, that uh, give away prices. Uh, so stay the course. Hopefully you've got um, your investments in dividend-paying securities. And uh, so just enjoy the cash flow. It'll just keep coming. And, uh, and wait it out. Okay. Let's take a call from Bill in Toronto. Hi, Bill. Hi. Um, that sort of goes with my question. I'm getting ready to retire. And um, I actually unloaded some of my tech stock, and I got out at a good time. So I'm sitting on a bit of cash. But I'm looking at things now when I retire, I basically need my dividends to supplement my income. So I'm looking at like banks. Banks are down by 20, 25, 30% in some cases, and they're paying dividends like into four and five and a half percent. Isn't this like a good opportunity to be getting into dividend stocks cheap? Who wants to take that, Alan? Sure, I can take that. Uh, The answer is yes. Um, I was just uh, on a on a on a show or on a call recently, and I was saying how portfolios. If you have money to invest today, if you have cash available, now is a pretty good time to to buy some really good quality names, such as our Canadian banks that are trading twenty five percent off their their highs. Uh, you know, if you look at CIBC, Scotia Bank, they're trading five and a half percent dividends. Um, you're looking at even TD and Royal paying over four percent. Dividend. So I think Canadian banks make a lot of sense. You could even go into some of the U.S. banks. They might provide you with even further declines, price declines. Some of the banks like a J.P. Morgan, for example, the largest bank in the U.S., one of the largest banks in the world, down by a third of its value from its highs. 
don't pay as high a dividend, maybe in that three, three and a half percent range. But for those that are looking for growth and income, then that might be a name you may want to gravitate towards. So overall, I think the banks in general make sense for individual portfolios. You may also want to look at a name like an Enbridge paying a six six and a half percent dividend as well. That name comes to mind or some of the insurers, Manulife paying almost six percent as well. So names that we're all familiar with, names that we're all comfortable with, names that are companies that are not going to disappear tomorrow, but names that you could definitely invest your your retirement savings and and earn a good dividend to live off of uh, in retirement. So I'm still working and I'm still reinvesting my dividends. So basically, I'm in a good spot. I'm buying, I'm buying cheap stock with high dividends. Good for you. <laughs> no, I mean, no, it's that's you have to look at it. Well, that's exactly. No, no, no. I don't sell it. I, I didn't, I did, I didn't mean that any other way. Smart. Thanks, I'm Bill, for your call. Right. Yes. But Gordon? Uh, yeah, I was also going to say, Libby, one other thing that uh, area that uh, our callers should look at is utilities. Uh, they've um, held up very well uh, during this downturn, and uh, you're getting very attractive dividends from the utility stocks as well. Don't they usually get hurt in uh, economic times like this? Yeah, they do. Uh, but uh, right now, that's not happening. Uh, they're uh, holding up pretty well, and... Um, as they say, they're paying good returns. This is what our caller was looking for, is uh, stable stocks with uh, decent dividends, and utilities are certainly one place to find them. What about people who uh, have a lot less leeway in terms of their finances, and uh, they're living off their savings, and they're seeing this huge inflation, Gordon? What do they do? Uh, well, if they haven't got any way to generate more income, uh, then basically it comes back to uh, controlling your uh, your spending because there's there's only two uh, factors at work in uh, dealing with issues of inflation at the family level, and that's income and spending. So uh, if one side isn't going to uh, is fixed and it's not going to move, then you have to deal with the other side as best you can. Alan, I guess uh, your clients probably have a little more leeway than that. Well, I think it just depends on everybody, uh, their own specific situation. Uh, uh, you know, there are some clients that do have more leeway than others, but make no mistake, you bring up a good point. You know, we, we talk about dividend payers. We talk about, you know, uh, I know Gordon was talking about some utilities. These are paying, you know, let's say some of the utilities, you know, Fortis, 3.5%, Amera, 4.5%. You know, inflation is running close to eight percent. So even if you're making, you know, four, five percent, six percent on a dividend, inflation is is eating you know all that up right now. So for for many people that want to get ahead or at least try and keep up with uh, the rising costs of everything around us, at least temporarily, you know, you may have to look at something giving a little bit of growth as well. And I know, uh, you know, for some in some listening today. You know, technology might be a bad word because everybody thinks that technology is this high risk type of, uh, of, of sector. But really, if you look back to some of the other uh, times, uh, COVID, for example, um, you know, technology actually was a good defensive play. If you were to buy, you know, shares of Apple or something like that, that gave you uh, some good, some decent growth. I think you actually were able to hide out in a name like Apple or Microsoft uh, during the, the COVID uh, period of 2020, and you actually made out better than owning a bank at that time. So I think the word diversification is probably best in this case. If you're building a, a portfolio, you want to have a, you know, a good uh, number of dividend payers, names that are defensive in nature, perhaps. But I think you also want to sprinkle in a few of these larger cap names, either on the Canadian side, on the U.S. side, to give you a little bit of boost, to give you a little bit of oomph, to, to hopefully make or at least uh, you know, come close to making that inflation rate. And then hopefully over time, as the inflation rate drops, you know, down to the three, two, three percent range, which may take, as Gordon said, a couple of years. But as we get closer to that level, you know, hopefully you can still maintain a, you know, a six, seven percent growth rate, uh, factoring in, in dividends and growth. If you can make, you know, in that seven, eight percent range, then I think you're going to be ahead of the game. Gordon, what do you say to people who, at this point, uh, just want to park money in cash? 
Well, uh, well, of course, one of the advantages of the situation we're in right now is that interest rates are going up. And uh, the one of the very safe investments, but again, of course, not immune to the ravages of inflation, is uh, guaranteed investment certificates. Uh, you get much better rates now on GICs than you've been able to get for the past several years, and those, those rates are going to go higher as interest rates uh, on the whole move up. Uh, so if people are um, looking for safe investments and are willing to concede the fact that they're going to lose a little ground to inflation in the way, then you certainly might be looking at uh, these uh, GICs that you can get from any bank or trust company or, any, or uh, credit union in the country. Okay. Anything else you'd like to leave us with, Gordon? Well, again, I think the uh, last point I would just like to make is uh, the one I made a little bit earlier, and that uh, this too shall pass. <laughs> it, uh, we've seen it before. We'll see it again. And don't lose your cool. And remember, this is a temporary period situation. It may last a couple of years, but it will pass. Alan, anything to add to that? Yeah, I, I, I would say that the idea of you know, cash making you a little bit more, I think, is a great idea. But also remember, be flexible. These times uh, are changing quickly. Uh, as Gordon says, the, this too will, shall pass. If you put yourself into a, a locked-in GIC, which GICs for the most part are locked in, you may want to get out of it when things do change. So you may want to look to you know, some sort of bond instead, some sort of corporate bond or government bond, which can be sold where you can get out and move into something else. Should the, uh, you know, things change, interest rates stop rising, inflation start coming down, so I think you want to stay flexible at this time. I want to see. I think you want to stay diversified. And if you can do those two things, I think you'll handle these difficult times a lot better than most. Okay. Thank you so much, Gordon Pape and Alan Small. Bye-bye. Thank you. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.